In Daniel chapter 6, verse 27, it says, He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Today we find out the king has all sorts of methods for torture. This is day 12. Welcome to the Journey Through Daniel podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's Word. Together we'll discuss the content and meaning of each passage and how the book of Daniel can help us understand more about who God is and the story He's writing for each of us every day. Who has a lion pit? Who's like, when they wrote the law, throw them in the lion pit. What other pits they got? We got one of those hanging around out back. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, where'd they get the lions? Actually, lions aren't native to the Middle East. <laughs> well, I would Maybe say... Maybe they're mountain lions or something. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I wish I knew my zoology of ancient Babylon better. Oh, I think we imagine like lions with manes. Because thanks for Sunday school. That's what they well, do. Well, this is yes. Babylon. You've seen the walls, right? Like yeah. the striding lion is a central figure in Babylonian art. Yeah. You walk down the street, you have a line of lions painted on the walls that you're walking on. So that's part of Babylonian lore. But the pit, I will so say... it makes sense that they have a pit. Cool. Well, <laughs> it's actually undocumented. That's kind of one of the interesting things is, is, at least as far as I know, and you know, what kind of archaeological evidence you're going to have of a lion's pit, but they don't know of people who actually had these. But it's not surprising when you think about, like, look at what we read earlier about what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do to people. I'm going to oh, yeah. turn the house into rubble, rubble and, and slaughter them to pieces. Yeah, or, cut you into pieces. And, yeah. So... It doesn't surprise me, but... I mean, here's my question for you. By the way, welcome to day 12. We're just jumping into it. We are continuing the story from yesterday. I'm here with Brendan Lang again. Yep. Here with Ken Norton today, Let's representing go. the student ministries side of this. I'm representing and the sports the metaphor Shore. side. Nope. Thank None you for that. Side. No? Oh, bummer. Well, here's my question is like, listen, if you were going to get thrown into a pit of torture, what's your pit full of? Your den of Ooh, what? That's a good question. The question has always been like, what's the den of stuff you'd want? No, no, no. I the mean, den the of den of torture. Just, oh. It's your den. I mean, think of like Indiana like mine's Jones puppies. With the snakes. Can puppies? you imagine puppies? That went a very different path. Than what yeah, I, I wouldn't have guessed go. puppies. puppies. Uh, so many different puppies. A lot of people hanging that. out in the den. I would never leave. We have to pretend like it's hard. Like, mm. ah, you're torturing me. Ah, they're so cute. It's a fluffy. <laughs> <laughs> what den are you guys getting thrown into? Rats. I think rats. I can't do those. <laughs> Just they'll nibble on you a little bit. Oh, <laughs> I hope not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Ken. What about you? A den of poison ivy. Oh, really? that's a good one. Have you had poison ivy? Brendan, my, Obviously. my immune system is top-notch. I don't so why are you, wait, wait, why <laughs> is your this? Your immune system has so nothing to do with that's poison nothing ivy. That's gonna, <laughs> my skin is superior. Why are you worried about a den of poison ivy then? I don't know. It's the first thing I thought of. That would be uncomfortable. I didn't want to kill somebody. I just want them to itch. That would be... <laughs> You know, for, uh, oh, I thought you were talking about like what would hurt you. Have I misunderstood the question? I think that is the same question. Like, I, no, it? no, there's a difference between what <laughs> I, den I would use to torture people listen, I took and what question, would torture me. I took the question however way I took the question, right. and yeah. that was my answer. I mean, doing poison ivy. I think poison ivy would be you're playing the long. It game gets worse there. and worse. Yeah, because mm. you don't even know. You're like, oh, it's just a bunch of plants. Over time, too, I bet you get you. Well, I'll tell you who's playing the long game here is not the satraps. They are pretty short-sighted. And Daniel, Daniel seems like he has more of a long game play. I mean, we're only halfway through the book. This guy's like 80-something, wow. right? That's right. That's unbelievable. Well, we're going to finish up the story we started yesterday. Brendan, why don't you take us through our commentary for today? Day 12, God alone rescues and saves. Today's reading continues the story of Daniel and the lion's den. As we've seen, Darius was manipulated into making a decree that required all prayer to go to him for 30 days. In humble non-compliance with the decree, Daniel offered prayers to God just as he had always done. Now the story continues with the conspirators turning Daniel in. 
They say to the ruler in verse 13, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar's heated reaction to the civil disobedience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Darius's reaction is remarkably benevolent. Daniel 6.14 says, When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Darius may seem benevolent, at least in comparison to his erratic predecessor, but he is also characterized as incompetent. In a moment of comedy and irony, Darius desperately tries to save his only honest administrator, but proves to be incapable of dissolving his own law. Admitting defeat, he says to Daniel in verse 16, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. In other words, Darius couldn't save Daniel from his short-sighted policies, but perhaps God could. This portrayal of Darius may be comedic, but like all comedy, it contains a piercing sliver of truth. Despite all the power that human leaders may hold, there will always be limitations to what they can achieve. In American society, where we put extraordinary trust in our leaders, where we believe they can save us from past wounds and hope they can chart out an idyllic future for us, the story of Daniel and Darius should teach us to place our hope elsewhere. If we need someone to rescue us, God alone can save. For day 12, we're reading Daniel chapter 6, verse 11 through 28. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put into writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Ken, you want to take us through our discussion questions for day 12? Question 1. In Daniel 6.21, Daniel repeats a greeting we have read several other times throughout this book. May the king live forever. How does this greeting contrast with the affirmation of Daniel 6.26? 
for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, his dominion will never end. What is the book trying to teach us through these contrasting veins of thought? Question two, when have you set too much hope in a human leader? How are you let down? And how does that experience shape your perspective today? Well, you know why the lines didn't eat Daniel? Boy's 80 years old. <laughs> he is like, <laughs> yeah, like, he's going to be pretty old at this point. I mean, those lions probably looked at this and was like, uh, what are you feeding me? Well, also, he's like vegetarian. So how? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah how delicious true. can't... Oh, I don't know. He might not be vegetarian. Some right tough now, meat. But like, you know, he's got to be pretty lean. Uh, tough meat on those fit bones. guy. Well, today's an interesting day because it's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Yeah. And it's used for all kinds of metaphors, all kinds of teachings to kids. The faith of Daniel saved him from the lions. His faith in God, God saved him. The interesting part here is that for me, what stands out is that Darius realized he couldn't save him. Yeah. And he worked a whole day to try to save Daniel. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? I mean, he did issue the decree. And why would he try to save him? I think part of what's going on here is he's, we've talked about how there are parallels between stories in this part of the book of Daniel. Daniel 2 through 7, this chiastic structure where chapter 2 parallels chapter 7. We'll see that as we move into chapter 7. Chapters 4 and 5, we talked about the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, how they're similar, how they're different. Chapters 3 and 6, we have these two parallel stories, Judeans, people of Judah who were persecuted and thrown into some sort of pit fiery pit or pit of lions and not as good as my pit of puppies not as good does as, not sound fun yeah it doesn't sound good and so just methodologically when i read scripture a lot of times it's important for us to look at comparisons like this but also the contrast because sometimes the contrasts when we have parallel sort of things going on between stories in scripture or things with scripture and stuff that's going on extra biblically in non-biblical literature when there are contrasts sometimes those are the main points mm. they help us see something that stands out and what stands out about darius as opposed to nebuchadnezzar is that he's an incompetent ruler. We don't really get that impression with Nebuchadnezzar. And we know this extra biblically. Nebuchadnezzar was, he's the most famous king in all Babylonian history. Darius, he's portrayed as aloof. He's manipulated by people who work below him. And then he comes up with a decree that he can't change. Yeah. And so the story, it's almost like comedy. It shows how incompetent he is as a leader. And it teaches us a little bit about trust. And are we willing to get behind people like Darius? Are we willing to trust that they can save us or are we going to trust in God? Well, and it is difficult because, you know, Darius has all good intentions in this part of the story. You know, yeah. the last one, he does seem very aloof in hindsight. It's just like, how do you not see that they're trying to manipulate? Yeah. You know, this guy is obviously one of your top people. You're trying to promote him. Why would you not think that with this timing that they were going to come after you? But he does try to clean the mess up, right? He yeah. tries to do whatever he can to save Daniel. Yeah, he's presented as more of a benevolent leader than Nebuchadnezzar is. Nebuchadnezzar also comes across sometimes as buds at times with Daniel and his friends, but also at times he puts them in really difficult situations. He gets situations. angry. He gets, he gets really pretty angry, angry with yeah. them. And that's kind of how Darius says. He's benevolent, but he follows through on a law that he's made and he now can't change. And that's a theme we see throughout scripture, actually with the law of Medes and Persians. This theme we actually kind of see in the book of Esther as well, where the leaders of Persia make these laws and they can't change them. They're bound to them. 
I think what's interesting too is like you look at Daniel in this situation and, and what can we take as a person of God, a person who follows God's commands in the face of ignorance, aloofness, mm-hmm. you know, comedy, this is like leadership style is comedic. And even though he, the king is benevolent, mm-hmm. he is powerless to change. Like he's outside of his ability to like change the reality, right? And what does Daniel do with that? He gets thrown to the lions. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, that's, he's not able to do something. And I think yeah. that's the tragedy, I guess, in this comedy, that Daniel suffers because of that incompetence. And Daniel's thrown to the beasts, but he's rescued, nonetheless, by the one who, throughout this whole book, we've been reminded again and again and again, he's the one who has power. He's the one who can save. He's the one who has authority over the beasts of this world. Well, and that's the thing I guess I'm getting at. Is like What he does is he's like, listen, you know what? You made this decree. I've known that I'm doomed. It's not like he fights the accusation. Yeah, I've been praying three times a day. It's yeah. probably what he said. He owns it. And whatever you're going to do to me, like, that's fine. And that's all you can do is take what the ignorance gives you and you go into the den of lions and know that if you are faithful to it, that God has your back and God will rescue you, you know? It's still scary though. Absolutely. We say a lot of times God rescues us, right? Yeah. And like, we all know that's true. But I think in the moment, like the courage and bravery it takes, I just can't imagine what Daniel's thinking as he's being lowered into a lion's den. How do you mentally like wrap yourself around that and continue to like serve faithfully throughout all of this yeah. when it just keeps happening over and over again? The character of Daniel just continues to like, he's such a strong, stays on his line, doesn't move away from it, depending on whatever he's experiencing, and he just remains firm in it. And what an example for us to do that same thing throughout all the things, whatever we're experiencing, but. Man. And one of the things, we'll see how this parallels in a lot of ways what we see in chapter 7. We'll talk about that more later. But it also anticipates what we see in Jesus. Just think about what happens to Jesus. Even literally, there is a stone rolled across this, what should surely be Daniel's tomb. Yeah. And in a way, there is a resurrection, a rescuing, a conquering of death that happens here. And this king, this reluctant, benevolent guy Mm -hmm. whose ignorance has allowed this to happen is the first one at the tomb hoping and praying that death has been conquered, right? Mm. I mean, that is not lost on me, at least, because I just live in metaphor and that's probably (laughs) my own curse. But it's unbelievable, the parallels. There are so many. And he's raised to a position of authority. And this is what the New Testament teaches us about Jesus, is that when he's raised from the grave, he's appointed, installed as king, he ascends to the heavens and gets a seat next to the Father. And so the parallels, we see it throughout. And we've talked about how Daniel's an innocent person as well, that the first half of this chapter, he's not corrupt. He's been faithful. He's been innocent through it all. And yet he absorbed the hits of beasts. I just think of Jesus, like in Daniel here, it says he's lifted up, he has no wounds. But then as you guys are talking, I'm like, well, Jesus gets raised up, but he has the wounds because yeah. he pays the price. Yeah. yeah, And it's just, oh, that takes it another step further where uh-huh. the sacrificial king. Well, and like you talk about contrast, there's the contrast, mm-hmm. right? That king versus King Darius or the king of the empire. And just to like go back a little bit, we have this like long oratory basically from Darius at the end that yeah. proclaims God's, you know, sovereignty, his ability to save. Yes, yeah. yeah, all that stuff. And just like for context, this is actually really common with the Persian Empire mm-hmm. and Cyrus the Great, particularly. He was not somebody who came in and actually like oppressed people religiously, usually. So that's why this story is also somewhat uncommon, that's right? That's really good observation like it's like his thing was like he actually really liked to partner with people and be like listen you keep this all i'm gonna ask is that when we fight a war we want your best of what you can offer for us to do that and take over more lands because that's what it was about right we want to go forth throughout the whole world and conquer it and make it one empire so you give us the best of what you can and we'll do that but what this says this oratory at the end regardless of what affirmations they give to other religions Mm -hmm. it goes beyond that and proclaims how powerful this god that daniel follows is 
we've seen that how many times? How many times did Nebuchadnezzar forget again and again and again? And he falls in the same patterns of pride and power abuse and arrogance. And he's reminded again and again and again that God is in control, that the power that I have was given to me by God, that he's the living God, that he's sovereign. I'm the king of kings. He's the God of kings. He's the Lord of kings. And we see it once again. It's a new king. It's a new empire, but it's the same theme. It's a king who learns through his own inability to affect the change that he wants in the world, that God alone is able to do the things that he wants to achieve. And it will be done. That's the thing. Ultimately, it will be done. And I think Daniel has this vision for it. You know, he has eyes to see that, listen, even if God does have me die by lions, that's his will. He's giving the lions the power to overtake me. Even just at the end, like of Darius's little oratory thing here, he says he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And he didn't have to. He didn't have to. But he did. We talked about the hand of power in Daniel 5, right? Right. This hand that shows up. That word translated there is power is literally hand, the hand of lions. And it's this theme again that there are beasts in this world, there are lions in this world, there are rulers in this world that have power in their hands. And the reminder is that they may have power, but it's there because God has put it there. If there's someone who really is in control of this world, who's able to affect the change again that we want to see, he's the one who can accomplish it. I think it's so applicable in this season to, I mean, we're in a very politically divided country and a very politically divided time. Again, we are recording this well before the election, well before any of that stuff. So we don't even know what's happening when this airs. But it is easy to see how one would hope that the human leaders that are elected or in place Mm -hmm. could be the ones to help or save humans, you know, save our fellow man. Yeah. So how do we live in this world, in this country, honestly, which is a privilege, and know that we also have power in putting those people in those positions to rule over. And we have confidence and we put our faith in this idea that like these human rulers should help save us and should help care for us and have benevolence. And often we find ignorance where we would hope there would be benevolence. How do we live in that world? So one thing I want to just preface is that like I don't want people to walk away from this thinking we should be apolitical. I see that all the time from friends on social media that are sincere Christians who think we just need to talk about Jesus. We just need to talk about the gospel. And I think that there's a misunderstanding about what the gospel is, first off, and that's another conversation that I want to get into, but I won't. But yes, we trust Jesus is our king. We admit that Jesus is our king. We give allegiance to him as our king as opposed to other authorities, but recognizing him as king is an inherently political activity. It's not devoid of political ramifications. And even Jesus, when he was on this earth, he confronted the political authorities of this world because he recognizes that there are things that need to be fixed. There are things that need to be sorted out and made right. And so as the one who had been appointed as king by God, by the spirit, he confronted those authorities and said, this type of stuff needs to change. This world needs to function differently. And so I think as followers of God, of course, we have to interact with the political realm. We have to vote. We have to speak up. We have to confront platforms that allow for things that are against the heart of God. We need to speak truth politically. But having said all that, we also have to recognize that the people we put in office, the people we vote for, those people aren't God. Those people can't accomplish all these things on their own. We want to trust and believe. And this is just from experience. You know, I think a lot of times as an 18-year-old. Not now. You're not, not now. I'm not 18. Yeah, yeah. Easy to but be when I was 18, and when you guys were 18, you got to vote for the very first time, there was this sort of excitement, right? Yeah. Like mm. this, I'm going to finally contribute, and yeah. I'm going to get my person in office, and things 
things are going to be better. Yeah. And you get to the end of four years and it's like, what's really different? Again, it's not that political leaders don't make changes. There are a lot of consequences to the people we put in office. But I think sometimes we exaggerate the hope we should have in these people. Is it just the idols? I know we've probably talked about this before, but making politics, making this idea or hope in leaders not this idol that will overtake how we view Jesus as king. When you start putting too much hope into a leader, into a person, even though it's natural, like it's natural, I think, to follow a leader that you can see. But how does that coincide with your belief in Jesus? Like, how do you stop letting that become an idol, even though it's good? Right, because good things can become ultimate things, and when they become ultimate things, yeah. if it's not in the place of where God should be, then it derails us, or you present opportunities for sin, or whatever that is. So, how do you stop it? How do you give it the correct amount of importance to when then you That's just you stop and say, "Okay, enough is enough. I can't let this overtake me." What I would say is, I think a lot of times we can be earnest and be passionate and sincerely try to follow Jesus with the way we vote and the way we engage the world politically. But there gets to be a point sometimes where we sort of flip the roles of Jesus and our presidents and the politicians and our parties and things like that. We become so passionate about one person or party or cause that we begin to see them as God. We would never confess that. We would never say that. But all of a sudden, where I see it is when you start defending things that aren't of God. Social media has absolutely destroyed that for us as a people, because where we may have had thoughts in the past, you can kind of let it go, you know, but when you just consume the same thing, the algorithms, whatever that is, then it just feeds that thing within you that closes off your mind to different viewpoints, to different things. And then you just sit there and, you know, an hour goes by and there you are like... It breeds divisiveness. Absolutely. Twitter. I mean, it's a cesspool. Yeah. As soon as you go onto it, it feeds off of each other. And then you're just... And I think you do. I mean, I think that's a good line. You ask, where's the line? For me, that's it. Like, listen, I don't care like how political you are or you claim that you aren't. You should be because, you know, whether it's out there protesting peacefully or just going to the polls and voting, I think our privilege indicates which one we have to do and which ones we can choose to do at different levels. But what is true is that when politics or your stances on certain views get in the way of relationships, I mean, the church is supposed to made up of people of all different views all different political perspectives, all different races and genders, and everybody should be represented in some way. And they all should be able to coexist. And that's the kingdom on earth, right? That is heaven, is mm-hmm. all the people who are following Jesus for the right reasons, coalescing together and understanding that, listen, no matter what our disagreements, no matter what cultures we bring to the table, which should all be respected, we believe in this ultimate king mm-hmm. and this ultimate kingdom. And that should come first. The allegiance. Yeah. Brennan, I can't remember. One time we were talking and I don't know if I was struggling through the definition of faith, but I think I remember asking you something that's always stuck with me where, and you could speak to this a little bit because I don't want to take the words out of your mouth, but it was, your faith is more like allegiance to the king. And that has always stuck with me because it's like this allegiance, this drive of like the decisions you make, that like your faith is so tied to the king. It's exactly what you were saying, but it's just that language of the allegiance to the king. How do I always remember that first and foremost, I'm loyal to the king and whatever comes after that, all right, whatever. But I don't know if it's... No, you've already explained it. I think it's a few things. And we talk about the gospel. We misunderstand the gospel sometimes because we fail to recognize that when people talk about the gospel in the New Testament, it's a royal announcement about the enthronement of Jesus. It's in inherently royal. And what is getting at is this idea that Jesus has been installed as king of heaven and earth. And so we're supposed to respond in faith. But what is faith really? 
when you really dive into how this word is used, oftentimes it has this nuance of loyalty or allegiance. You see this in some extra biblical books, you see it in some New Testament books. And so when you think about it in those terms, that the climax of the gospel is this idea that Jesus has been installed as king. He's been raised from the pit of lions, right? Raised yeah. out of the pit of beasts. The uh, stone ascends, has been rolled away. Stone has been rolled away. Right. Yeah, yeah. And he's ascended to a position of authority, just like Daniel is. He's ascended to a seat of authority next to the Father. This is what, when people preach the gospel in the New Testament, this is the climax of the gospel. And so our response is faith, but faith, the way I understand it, is allegiance. It's faithfulness. Yeah. It's different than I think sometimes what when I was growing up as a Christian, where the faith gets attached to the, like this belief, you know, if I just mm -hmm. believe enough. Yeah. And it entails like that. Santa Claus, or if, yeah, I, if sure. I just do something yeah. like that, then these things are going to happen. Then you get where, the presents on Christmas. Yeah, and when I heard the yeah. allegiance, it just shifted this mindset of like, okay, there is obviously a belief, but there's a depth of what it means to be it's a commitment. loyal to the, yeah, commitment. And there's a book I've been reading, it's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone by a guy named Matthew Bates. That one's maybe a little bit too technical. There's another one he's written called <laughs> Gospel Allegiance. That's a little bit more for everyday folks. For me. Or the Thanks, King Jesus yeah. Gospel. Thanks, Scott, Scott McKnight. Whew. Thanks Lots for the everyday of, folks. <laughs> how God became king, N.T. Right. Yeah. A lot of great books that talk about this idea. But allegiance, it gets at this idea that faith isn't going into an auditorium, being given a gospel presentation, which mm -hmm. again, I think is a misunderstanding of what the gospel is, and then raising your hand and saying, you know, I accept forgiveness of sins and I'm good. It's a decision every day to say yes to God, to say, I'm going to do whatever you ask of me. And so if that's what faith is, if that's what allegiance is, that's what we should do as followers of God. And to bring it back, this is what this story is about. There's a decree that's issued that is contrary to Daniel's allegiance. And the first thing he does is set up a practice every day that announces to everybody who his allegiance is to. And the one fun question is like, how did the satraps know that he was praying up in his room by himself? That's a little interesting. And there's a whole question about, you know, there's a lot of things like eavesdropping and all that stuff. That's good stuff. But what I think that we can latch onto in this is like that king, the king that we have been called to in the New Testament, that allegiance, he is everything. He is not the incompetent king. And he's not the king that's quick to anger. You know, he is the benevolent king. He is the one who can fix all the problems and nothing is undone under his watch unless he wills it. He is the ultimate power. The kings of this world will always fail us but the King of Kings will never. Thanks for joining us today for the Journey Through Daniel podcast. If this is your first time, so glad that you checked us out. To check out even more resources, children and family resources, and eBooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org and follow us for updates at willowcreeknes on Instagram. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check us out at willowcreek.org. We'll see you next time.